four, three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast, uh, season 15, episode six, I think. And we're talking about the middle portion of Frankenstein here tonight. I am but one of your hosts for the evening, Jonathan. I'm Josh. And I'm Luke. And we're very excited to be talking about Frankenstein a little bit more. We got through the introductory material the last time, talked about the creation of the monster, and now we're entering the second act, uh, a structure that I quite enjoy. I don't know if it feels more like a second act because of how we've sliced and diced the book up and are stitching it back together, uh, or if this was purposeful by Mary Shelley. Maybe that's something we can talk about here this evening. But we are going to be getting into that. Are you guys excited? Can we call it the torso of the novel? That's actually a really good idea, I would argue. This is why yeah. you, why you're the Leonardo, uh. the, the twisted <laughs> the twisted torso of of this moody gothic novel. Yeah, this is going to be pretty exciting, and and maybe we're going to all uh, tell some stories about our our fathers and and cry. Holy I God. don't know. Yeah, I mean, let's get intense. <laughs> it's 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 a body of material we're going to get into, right? <laughs> The corpus, yeah. (laughs) I'm glad to know that we have our our body puns at the ready uh, and that we're ready for like the podcast as therapy. If we all have our Austrian accents at the ready, I know that that we're good to go. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's what we're getting into tonight. We're going to start, though, with our usual witty banter and talk about what we are indulging this evening. What kind of beverage do you have there, Luke? I uh, I wrapped up a little bit of a uh, very old Barton ninety proof, and uh, now I'm moving on to some Paps Blue Ribbons, uh, some PBRs. It's you gotta just you gotta go with what you got, and I got I got them. So <laughs> I uh, I've got a handful of PBRs. That's what I've got going. Josh, how about you? What about you? Well, well, fellas, for more than 60 years, legendary master distiller Jimmy Russell has been crafted Wild Turkey 101 one way, the right way. <laughs> the flavorful and I've got, way. And the flavorful way. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a complex flavor of caramel, vanilla, toffee, and spice, and uh, it's in my cup. It's Wild Turkey 101. And on that note, we would like to say that we are sponsored by Campari Liquors. <laughs> yeah. And, Ma- and Matthew McConaughey and Matthew, is joining us that next would be, episode. That would be amazing. I would love to see him as Dr. Frankenstein in a movie. Uh, I will round us out by saying I am also enjoying the 101 bourbon that master distiller Jimmy Russell, the Dr. Frankenstein of bourbon, has constructed. Uh, that's right. That's what we're drinking. Up next, we have the well-loved... The cobbled together, the beautiful thing that is. Luke, you want to okay. lead us off? Yeah, man, sure. So uh, I guess my one thing is going to be a single musician, and that musician is, uh, I guess his stage name is King Diamond. Also, <laughs> he's been he's been known by, uh, uh, you know, his 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 other like christian names we're not going to mention those uh he's king diamond so that individual was of course the the lead singer of merciful fate and then went on to form his own band called king diamond with a variety of folks andy larock was of of course like the producer and the guitarist for a lot of their work uh i uh i got a a copy of abigail on vinyl which is like the seminal uh, King Diamond album, and I already had a handful of like Merciful Fate albums on King uh, on 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 copy already. Nice. Uh, and I've just been listening to a lot of it. It's good if you like uh, operatic soprano kind of high high lilting voices with your with your me- your heavy metal, and you like some satanic stuff. Go for it. Uh, and if you don't. That's cool. Check out and come on back. Uh, he is an acquired taste with his his singing, uh, but I love it and I've I've grown more to to become a fan of it. That's Let it. Let me help so. you out of the chick window. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it is it is high high tenor. Like you, you can't get away from from the actual like lyrics and the delivery of that. It's not something that's buried. It's, it's like the front and center. It's the thing that you came to the show for, especially with, uh, the King diamond releases. 
you know, and I, I haven't listened to a lot of the later stuff after them. Uh, I'm starting to just to kind of get experienced with, with what's there, but, but really it's, uh, it's formative, but it is divisive. I guess that's all I can say, but I like it. I I'm, I've been listening to a lot of it. I honestly haven't listened to a lot of King Diamond or Merciful Fate, to be to be honest. I mean, I, I guess I would definitely hew to more of the Merciful Fate side of the fandom. I, I love Merciful Fate. Those first two albums, like Melissa and Don't Don't Break the Oath, are are beautiful, uh, and they're like perfect metal albums, both of them. But I, I I've grown really to love like Abigail and them. And uh, just the way that there's more of the, the the classic horror supernatural concept album that he wraps up and the King Diamond releases. I dig it. Uh, but again, it's a it's an acquired taste and it's more theatrical. It's a bit more hokey. And if it's not your thing, that's cool. But man, if 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 that's all, you know, go back to the 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 Merciful Fate releases, because you cannot you cannot just top the stuff that's on those first couple albums. What about you, dude? What about you, Josh? I'm going to like pass the baton over to the nice to the next dude. The talking hey, dude. stick has been passed. This dude. I have the conch. Um, I've been listening to the new Ghost album a lot. I don't remember if this was this your one thing last time. Maybe you just asked it, me. It. No, no, it wasn't. Uh, but that's that's another like that's been on my uh, listening uh, over the past the past little bit too. Yeah, it's great, man. It's it's great. Yeah, call me little sunshine. Um, and let's see, what's the other song that I really liked? Um, oh, I can't think of it. It'll come to me in a minute. I'm, I could Google it, but I'm not going to. But I I read an article earlier today that it is the um, fastest selling, um, fastest selling album in any genre, um, in terms of vinyl and CD sold, according to loudersound.com. Uh, Impera had 2022's biggest first week sales week for any album with 62,000. Uh, uh, their, their number is me- messed up, but it looks like 62,500 copies. Uh, there's an extra zero at the end. And the comma is misplaced. I can't. I wouldn't believe that it would be six hundred and twenty-five thousand copies. That seems outrageous. But uh, it looks like that people are digging uh, Ghost and they're buying it uh, in in physical media, and those things are pretty great. It's the the biggest first uh, sales week for a hard rock album on vinyl since nineteen ninety four. Can you guys guess what album that might be? Guns N' Roses. That's a good guess. It's not. It's not Guns N' Roses. Is it Load? It's probably. It's too early for Load. That's a little too early for Load. Yeah. It's per- Pearl Jam's Vitalogy. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, people are are buying Ghosts. They're they're everywhere. They were on Jimmy Kimmel earlier this week. Oh, um, yeah. cool. So they are they are uh they they have just sort of become a household name in in terms of rock and roll music. They it's beautiful, man. Geist. Yeah. Satanism, yeah. Satanism is Satanism is 2022. That's the uh, <laughs> that's my uh, my take home statement post COVID. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of that Levian sentiment floating around. Uh, I love uh, what is it? I think it's called Respite on the Spital Fields. Mm-hmm. That's the the final track. I I really do love it. Uh, I think it's one of their best like one of the best works. Uh, and it's great. Like the, the, the opening and the closing of the album, it's bookended pretty, pretty well. Uh, but overall it's, it's, it's solid. I think it is very much carrying the torch of what they did with the, the last album, Melioria. Uh, and I'm loving it, man. I dig it a lot. Uh, so that's what I've been listening to here lately as I, drive back and forth to and from school to teach children science. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, John, sure what's those, up? Those parents would be so happy to hear that. Some of them might. Okay. <laughs> uh, I will not be rounding us out with music. I apologize for breaking the pattern. Uh, I was going to talk about a comic book 
collection that I recently finished called Sir Edward Grey Witchfinder, part of the nice. Mignolaverse. Have either of you ever checked it out? I've read the first. Uh, I have the first series uh, in single issues, but I've never read anything else. It's pretty dope. Luke, have you ever checked it out? Uh, I have. I can't recall exactly what I've read, but I know he's a recurrent uh, character. So at least with his first appearances within the Hellboy mythos, I was I was down with uh with with him. So Sir Edward Gray is a witch finder of sorts. He doesn't seem very at home with that nomenclature. He's not down with that title. Uh, he is an agent of the Queen, and he subdues a sort of like v- demonic vampire ghost in his opening set of stories by Mignola. And then he's in the American West in another, and then returns to England to an area called Unland and fights uh, ghost eels, it seems like. And I don't know what was up with me. I just needed this in my life or something. But Victorian occult detective, was it really scratched an itch I didn't know I had. And uh, I want more of it. So I'm going to try and find the second omnibus and hopefully find more about Sir Edward Gray. I know that he plays a, a role in Hellboy's life later on and everything, but uh, just kind of a dope concept. The introduction, Mignola talks about how interested he is in like the Victorian era as well as occult detectives. He's not inventing a genre here or anything, but uh, the way that I was going to connect it to our season is that one of the writers that he works with in the first omnibus is Kim Newman of Anu Dracula. She writes the one uh, where I think it, it, with the eels. So uh, Dracula full circle comes back in. That's rad, dude. That's awesome. Yep. And then I was reading about the Mignolaverse. I didn't realize that he had a Frankenstein character, Frankenstein Underground. Have you ever read that? I don't know that. Yep, I so guess it's not re- it. like digging any bells. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Uh, the Mignolaverse is bigger than I thought. It seems like it's it's gone well beyond just the BPRD at this point. Dude, there's so much to it. I, I do have to say, like, from what I remember with uh, the Witchfinder character, he's cooler, I think, than, like, Lobster Johnson. Like, Lobster Johnson is a is a bit dude when he first pops up, and I have not read all of, right. all of that character's occurrences, but just in terms of, like, Hellboy-specific stuff, he's like, taste the claw! And yeah. he's, a, he's a bit part, he's this, like, pulpy shadows-inspired, or the shadow-inspired, like, like early pulpster kind of hero. I like the way the, the Witchfinder pops up and is more seeming substantial. Like, I mean, he... Uh, Mignola knows what's up, like, the way that he's playing with the weight of these different types of tropes. Mm-hmm. And I think... Uh, I think the Witchfinder is cool. Like, th- there's just a lot more. I think like substance to it. Uh, so, how many? There's two omnibuses. Is that what you said, Josh yeah. or John? Yeah, there's two big collections. They're not omnibuses like you would traditionally think of. Like, it's not like 700 pages long or anything. Uh, right. I think they're each about 400 or 450. Okay, yeah. that's still a butt ton of still, issues. Still each. some comics. Yeah, that's a it's lot of comics. A lot more than I realized. Yeah. So. He is a cool character. I like him more than Lord Baltimore, uh, the the other character that I read a little while back. Yep. Who's not in the Hellboy universe, if I remember correctly. It's a separate sort of thing, uh, but more Mignola. So pop on some heavy metal, read about a Victorian occult detective. That's what we're advocating for here today. Maybe, yeah, man. Maybe do mushrooms while you do it. I don't know. Let's get crazy on the Chromecast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you have a favorite like side uh, story or weird character that Mignola created? Either I, of you? I will be honest. Uh, I have always loved the concept of Lobster Johnson. I don't necessarily like a lot of his individual issues, like where he's the star. But when he yeah. shows up as like a ghost that helps out on the mission occasionally, I do think that he is very compelling. And then the weird like luchador part that they thread in where – he has this long and convoluted history he's created for this side character uh, that he inspires a luchador in Mexico that Hellboy meets. That all I, I enjoy quite a bit. I like the the fact that Hellboy likes Lobster Johnson. Like it's the uh, Batman and the Gray Ghost kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, right, right. Luke, do you have a, a favorite weird? You know, uh, I like. I have. I've not read like BPRD 
uh, proper material. So what's his name? Is it is it Roger the Homunculus? Yeah, Roger uh, the Homunculus. Yeah. So I, I think he is just such a tragic creation, and I love. I love that, and I think that kind of dovetails with our with our topic today. Mm-hmm. I love I love Abe Sapien though, and so I do. I have read some of the the Abe Sapien like limited three four issue type things that were coming out a while back. Those dudes, I, I love the emo-y, gothy like uh, uh, lonely boys of the BPRD type stories and. Uh, while I know more about Abe, I think Roger's super cool. Uh, those would be my, like my votes for just what I know. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I would, I wish that there was more, um, there were more appearances of the amazing screw on head because (laughs) that, that single issue is so weird and funny and pulpy and, just bonkers like it's it takes a lot of the hellboy stuff and kicks it into high gear uh so uh, i i wish that there was more uh amazing screw on head and the animated version of that is really good too yeah it's slapsticky right it's just over the top yeah that's good but you're right your your roger the homunculus leads us into uh the the dark depths of this this novel right very similar origin story and appearance when they first show up in the in the comics versus the book. Tonight we're getting into the the torso. I think we've described it as yeah. the abdominal segment of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Thus far, we have enjoyed the novel. Uh, the first part was definitely all about obsession. Uh, Doctor Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, is a man who becomes obsessed with different topics, and when he bites into something, he doesn't let go. And he decided he wanted to create life, did it, and then realized he'd made a big uh-oh and went running home to try and figure things out from there, only to discover that the monster had beat him there and murdered his brother. And now we get to see a face-to-face confrontation between the immovable force and the unstoppable object here. And it takes a long time for them to seemingly have a conversation. Uh, I would say this middle part is like, two vignettes right it's the courtroom trial of the person sort of framed for the murder of the brother and then uh frankenstein and his creation hanging out and getting a lot of exposition about what frankie has been up to yeah it's kind of the next step of uh frankie the monster saying now let me tell you what I've been doing. And then it, we go we go one level deeper into the nesting doll. And this is the cool thing, like with uh, our sort of uh, use of these. What's the term for uh, for for texts that are grounded in, in writings? What's the what's the term we use? Epistolary. Yeah. Epistolary. Yeah. yeah. So this isn't quite, I don't know if this quite qualifies as like epistolary text, but it's the same structure as something like Call of Cthulhu, which we've referenced before, but we're, bur- we're burrowing into a story within a story within a story. So it is cool to get the, the creature delivering his side of things where previously we've seen Frankenstein's, uh, Frankenstein's side of things, right? Yeah, and I was just going to say that this part is compelling because um, if if you take it to the extreme that the creature does, um, how often do we get to meet our creators? Like, Victor is both mother and father and absentee creator God to this this monster, uh, this this creation, Frankenstein. Um, it's it's pretty neat and i love the way that paradise lost kind of serves as a cornerstone to it so talk more about that how does that come into play well it it seems as though paradise lost is one of the few books that the creature read it's uh so um after he leaves after the creature leaves victor's home he is just bombarded by sensation right (laughs) um and he's think about being a newborn and not knowing what anything in the world is. Right. But you you have the capacity to kind of navigate through the world. You're a seven um, foot tall baby 
and you came to birth on a college campus in yeah. France. Like that's what he wanders out into. Yeah. Uh, and so he talks a lot about, you know, interacting with, with just baser elements of the world, light and darkness and cold and fire and learning how to stay warm out in the wilds, learning what foods could sustain him, learning how to cook it. Like he goes through a lot of, uh, uh, human like homo sapien development here, which is pretty cool. Um, and eventually he wanders around and finds this home that he spends time with. He, he's able to hide in kind of a cellar near the chimney of the, the fireplace. And he watches this family and he learns how to speak and he learns how to read. And paradise lost is one of the books that, that he is able to read. And he reads it as though it's a historical text, right? Like he, to, to him, this is, this is a a biblical story. Like this is, this is a truth. Um, and and instead of the, the Miltonian fable that it, that it is right. And he finds a lot of meaning and reflection in it because, um, Satan sort of is created to be, evil right and he he says you know better to better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven like there's some parallels between the the satan figure in paradise lost and the the monster i think um Mm -hmm. but that the the only time that the creature comes close to giving himself a name is in this section and he says to victor i ought to be your adam and that is i think a key difference uh, than looking at Victor as the monster's father, like Victor is the monster's creator God. And think about being able to meet a, you know, creator God that brought you into the world without, you know, your permission, essentially like just doing this and then dumping you. And so I wanted to, to see if you guys, found the same level of power from from that section maybe not necessarily the writing itself but the idea of coming to terms with your your creator that's a tough one uh i definitely see what you're saying uh i think that maybe we all go through that in a way like we all meet our parents or sort of meet our parents in many ways and when you do you can't help but wonder like what they were thinking when they made you (laughs) uh maybe that's that's too personal but uh it is it's a weird experience to be born and to exist and you get a lot of time to process that in a baby way as a real human but frankenstein doesn't get that like he has all the adult emotions all at once and has to confront a man that doesn't really want him so uh I mean, there, there's a lot of tragedy and pain there. I, I think I've lost the thread of what you were trying to unearth from us, but uh, it's it's a tragedy that is real, right? Like many mm-hmm. of us have parents that we have had to deal with this sort of feeling with where they didn't want you uh, and they left and then you re-met them later on or they didn't want you and they stuck around anyway and you had to deal with that throughout your life. Uh like this is a trauma that's that's not unknown to to humanity. So the Frankenstein's monster is putting on a good show for something that probably didn't get talked a lot about back in Mary Shelley's day. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'd say not. Did I did I find what you were looking for or I think I think I mean I I'm I'm wondering if you guys see uh is there a difference in the story in the way that it's presented um is it being presented as he's meeting and confronting his father or meeting and confronting his creator God, or is there a difference? I think a very humanistic way of looking at it is that there isn't a difference, right? I mean, your father, your creator, uh, that's all kind of wrapped up into one in the patriarchal system. So, uh, that's one way of looking at it, but I do see the religious undertones that you're kind of hitting at too. Yeah, I think it's I think it's all together. Uh, 
you know, Mary Shelley's situation was she was born and her mom died. And that's mm-hmm. that is wrapped up in this whole story, the way that it is a tragic creation myth that's being played out. Uh, and the the mixing of genders uh, is intentional, I think, on her part. Not not as, uh, you know. Uh, socially like derived as we would talk about in 2022. Uh, But I do think that it's intentional that Mary Shelley is playing around with the, the fact that a man is creating another man, like that you've got this, this gender sort of fluid creation. I think the more important thing is just creator and created. And uh, yeah, there's a butt ton of uh, souls in this world that have been created by uh, individuals that had no real desire to uh, take care of them. I think that's the important thing. And I think it's reflected. Like I, I love the way that there's these recurrent references by the creature to Satan he keeps comparing himself to Paradise Lost, which, of course, coincidentally, that's the book that he had at his disposal to kind of inform his 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 mind space over the year and a half of his of his development, that kind of thing. He's uh, he's a falling creature. He's damned. He didn't choose it, man. Uh, he got a, a bad. What's the right word? Like a he got a bad, a bad hand dealt to him, just like so many people in the real world that's intentional i think i think that uh mary shelley you know she didn't necessarily have an easy go of things she had uh difficulties over the entirety of her life uh in the grand scheme of things she wasn't dealing with this is the stuff that like what's the the name of the the editor wolf of the the annotated frankenstein that i'm reading he makes the point that, you know, Mary Shelley and and her husband, they weren't necessarily like feeling hunger pains at the most severe instances of their their financial distress. But they were going through some 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 squeezes. Uh, I think this is Shelley like trying to ultimately in the in the hardest terms, though, point out why it's why it's an unjust bad rap that we all have to deal deal with upon being born like not to make it too too bleak but <laughs> we're all born and nobody asked for this shit right like that's <laughs> kind of that's kind of the statement mm-hmm. sorry for rambling no this is this is uh this is a freewheeling conversation about uh a book that's that's been well tread in literary conversations right um it's getting the Chromecast treatment now <laughs> So is that one of your favorite things about this section then Josh is uh the the Miltonian undertones and the the fa- the father issues it is it, and issues. it is and and the interesting thing to me I mean there's a number of interesting things here so I'm going to say the interesting thing probably a lot um <laughs> but one interesting thing is that if if the creature is comparing himself to the figure of Satan in Paradise Lost then you know, they, there must have been some sort of rebellion or he, he thinks that he's done something to deserve this, right? Like Satan in Paradise Lost still rebels against against the Almighty and is cast out. Uh, but I think that actually it's even like I think that Shelley has taken a step towards painting things more tragically because the creature a couple times over says like even Satan – had his friends or yeah. uh, even, even the, even the low one had, had X, Y, and Z. Like the, the, the problem with and the most tragic element of the creature is that he is totally singular in his position and he has, he has zero to turn to. Like he's trying to identify with the, the family in the cottage and all mm. that kind of stuff. And I think that I, he is he is interpreting his situation as even that much more the worse than uh lucifer mm-hmm. and and has he has done 
nothing to deserve this. Right. I right. Think is, is my point. Like there, there was no, no crime, no sentence levied at him. This is just kind of how things are. Yeah. So it is even worse. There's, there's no, um, he's out here alone in the remorseless universe. Yeah. He is not the rebel. He is not the, uh, the antagonist or the anti, you know, the, the way that we might perceive Satan to be like, this is a, an individual that didn't even have that like decision that he presented. Just wants to eat his berries and acorns in peace. He he likes grilled meat. It's true. When he finds it, when people throw it away, he likes to eat that. Any other favorite things that you would like to share? Uh, I'm sure there will be some as we as we move along. I don't want to I don't want to uh, dominate you the conversation the whole time, but I Luke? I can yield the floor. Yeah, I, I just, yeah. I mean, I think that we're hitting on the cool stuff. Like I went through the annotated copy with a with a number two pencil because I'm not gonna be a total heathen and use like uh, ink to mark up the, the the book that I have. But I did go through and I kind of annotated like where different chapters between editions started. And then I just sort of put ellipses or not necessarily circles, but just like brackets around the sections that I like the most. Uh, and all of those sections were the most Miltonian Satan-esque paradise lost uh, uh, laments that the creature offered. I think to me, that's the most compelling com- like portions of this, of this middle this torso uh, of the overall <laughs> the corpus or the body of a Frankenstein that we're working through. I do think there's some total like fluffy fluff. Once we get into the story of the people at the cottage and you've got what's her name? Sufi who ultimately comes into their, <laughs> to their, to their home. Right. It is this convoluted story and it's very contrived. You totally see at this point in time in 2022, the artifice of what Shelley was doing, putting her story together, right? The fact that, uh, what like the creature is, and he can pick up languages secondhand. What's the term? Like autodidactic. I right. think that's what, uh, that's what, what Wolf uses in the, the, the edition that I'm using, like he pulls a little bit of a clinger angle. Like every time something seems a bit too, uh, convenient, he points it out and it's like, here again, we have the creature learning words just off the cuff, just naturally that happens. Uh, and I don't like that so much. And, and the, the convoluted story about the love interest is, is a little bit long winded too. It just needed to be tightened up, but, you know, it's a gothic novel. Like, it's it's a gothic novel, and it's a proto novel in a lot of ways, right? Like the same way that we talked about, like the uh, the Dracula movie as a proto film. The last uh, the last uh, while back when we were wrapping up Dracula, like this is this is early, man. Like, there's there's no there's no rules there's nobody telling you how to do this shit like you're just kind of feeling it around and so i need to have the monster understand words i guess he learns language from from looking inside a peephole for uh a like a, a season and he learns language and, he, and 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 by the numbers he gets paradise lost as well as like a roman history book or something like like these very key seminal texts that teach him how to be a heartwarming, you know, individual and a respect for God and a respect for like political angles. She's just kind of covering her bases. Sorry. I'm again, I'm rambling, but it's much the nature of the book. Yeah. It is kind of a weird ramble here in the middle. Like Frankenstein gets his chance on the stage and is like, now let me tell you a tale of how uh how frankenstein's <laughs> monster learned french and uh about love i guess that was what i took away from <laughs> from that section is he had to understand the concept of love somehow to maybe want a mate which is ultimately what he asks of dr frankenstein and right i feel like that was the sole purpose of that really convoluted like 
uh, arrest of a foreign yep. national in France and Paris yeah. sort of thing. And so, you know, like me, myself in 2022, having read a lot of sword and sorcery novels, I'm like, you know what, Mary, you can tighten this up. Just <laughs> you, you don't need to have this belabored like family structure. Maybe you condense it and have, have some sort of fiery love that manifests like that's what's seen. Uh, but it's just a long, a long form relationship that, that, that he's being shown. Right. right. Like there's just, just like not the year. mechanisms. It's like a year that he watches this family from, from yep. their hog house or whatever. Pretty I guess. much. Yeah. Cause he arrives like what coming into the fall, like late summer and he was born, uh, Maybe so he was born in the fall, like he was born uh like post Halloween. Like it's very uh deep autumn when he is created and then he comes there and he spins a full cycle. Like he gets to be a couple of years. By the time we end the story, he's like well into his second year. So he spends that full like cycle with them, man. We didn't even touch on that in the last one about how his birth cycle is the wrong way, right? Like he's born when everything's dying and comes into uh, his sentience at the wrong time of year. Like it's yeah. a barren world that he's a part it's of. It's a pretty, it's a pretty romantic sort of view on things. And it totally fits with this dude. Yeah. Uh, it's cool. But yeah, he watches this family. I agree. I, I, I had notes, I guess if I had talked to Mary Shelley back then about, this story, I would have maybe suggested that it was just the old dude and his wife and, and a wife of his, and that's what Frankenstein's monster learns love from. Maybe he even gets to talk to the man a couple times because he's blind. Uh, he just like pretends to be a woodsman or something, and he gets taught some life lessons from this guy, and you know, really passes. <laughs> What's so funny, Josh? <laughs> uh, really, really starts to understand the world a little bit better. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Like maybe he would have an interaction with a wife or something like that, right? Like somebody to also espouse that love. Uh or that's not the right word. To somebody somebody to like explain it to him in like lay terms that he can easily pick up so that he's like, "Oh, yes, I feel this inside me." He just he needs it and the the blind grandpa figure is convenient but there's nothing in this story (laughs) like there's a lot of convenient elements there's nothing that says there can't also be a a blind grandma to explain like what it means to be in love with grandpa right right? you know and and mary shelley she wasn't writing that she was trying to operate within the the love triangle sort of gothic structure that's laid out i get that but you know 2022 these are the criticisms or the, the suggestions that we might sort of like lay at it. I just like the idea of, of us mansplaining uh, birthing science fiction into the world to Mary Shelley. Like, no, no, Mary, we have, we have notes. We can help with tell you. And, and I mean, to her are, point, yeah. and she's wrestling with like the way that she writes it. She's dealing with her own personal trauma of I was born and my mom died. Like that is, that is central to how she's talking about this. So she's not necessarily wanting to plug in a lot of like, uh, parents into the story. So definitely no parents of the female persuasion. No, no, there's a lot of mom issues, right? That's another thing that (laughs) no. And the moms that are painted are, uh, are problematic too. So, so that's another thing that Wolf points out. Like every, every parent is a problem. Uh, and there is this, this disweighted, like it is weird that there's a lot of dads, uh, with, with how things are, 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 are personified. But yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's easier for us to say, this is might be how we would want to paint things up, but it's, all within the scale of like trying to make a tidier story. Right. And so here in the middle portion of the story, it gets a little convoluted, but it's a Gothic kind of romantic tale. So we can kind of, uh, hand wave some of the, the, the story elements, but it's still boring, right? Like that's what we're getting at. (laughs) Yeah. There's not, not a lot of action going on in the French countryside at these exiled people's house, uh, where it is, 
Sorry, go no, ahead. No, I just, I mean, where a weird love affair is rekindled and <laughs> uh, sanctified under God's eye. Can't get out of my head your voice saying, uh, let me tell you about the time old Frankenstein wondered. That I went on this one year sojourn hiking through the mountains and <laughs> discovered what love <laughs> discovered what love was. <laughs> I took a gap year after I was born. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but I mean, that's really the main crux of this, right? Like Frankenstein learns about love. Frankenst- or Frankenstein's monster learns about love and learns about life. And he wants and that. He be- and he becomes human, right? right. Like the, all of these things we're talking about is he realizes he has this human spark inside him and he has no one to share it with because he is such a horrific figure, right? He doesn't have any other compatible individual. And just so happens he's having this whole convo, spilling it out to his creator saying, uh, you know, GDU, right. uh, you, you created me and now I demand, give me take, a compliment. Take my rib. And form me a mate. Mm-hmm. And that and that is the most beautiful. Like whenever whenever Mary like breaks this shit down to the most biblical, I love it. That's when I love uh Frankenstein the most. That's what I'm that's what I'm discovering with this this reread, which is a long time coming. So we're at twenty twenty two. I probably read this in two thousand and three, something like that. So nearly two decades later. I'm loving the the biblical stuff that I didn't pick up on at that point in time. I thought it was just boring when I first read it and didn't get the, the get the whole point of why it was cool. I'm getting some of the coolness. I'm still getting that it is a bit boring, but man, we need to uh, reckon with our biblical creators. Like that's kind of the the story that's emerging here. Mm-hmm. And there's subtext about like you know Frankenstein. The Frankenstein's monsters lived experience short as it is being away from civilization, away from, from, you know, science more toward the, the mysticism of things. Whereas, uh, Victor is man of science, right? Absolutely. Uh, brought up in it, believes in it, has only studied it. Uh, that is his truth. So yeah, it is, it's interesting like how, the monster interacts with the world is very mystical. That's the best way to put it where everything is, is kind of magical as it's happening to him and unfolds around him. I've, I guess one of my questions during all of this is does he, does he have any spark from before? Like, does he have any echoes in his mind? You think, is that why he's able to pick up on languages and concepts quicker than maybe seems normal? It, it, he does pick it up all up very conveniently and quickly. And I know there's probably not a lot of subtext stating this, but I mean, he is cobbled together from people. Uh, it's conceivable that he's haunted by the memories he can't quite grasp or something. Uh, he's just a, he's a convoluted fella. Frankenstein's monster. Uh, yeah, I think that's as feasible an explanation as anything is that he, um, you know, reawakens certain certain memories, neurons that are now dead begin to fire again, back to life. Sure, a genetic memory or something like we've talked about with Howard before. Yeah, or or even you know that that stuff was stored in that dead brain of his, yeah. and and you know certain things are unlocking those neurological pathways. Magic, magic <laughs> is unlocking, magic is unlocking those those neurological pathways. I don't want to shortchange the other action that happens here. There is like a whole courtroom drama that unfolds where the babysitter is convicted of murder and falsely confesses to it, right? Right. Yeah, we we kind of wrapped up with that last episode, right? I think she was going to jail, but I don't did we go through her her conviction? I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. or maybe we did her conviction but not her execution. Um Okay. And her her whole deal is that she is loyal to the end, but like I don't know, there was something puzzling about about that whole thing with Justine. 
Yeah. What was your What was your take on it? It is weird. I mean, it's one of those things we were just sort of dogging this whole dog and pony show that comes out with the the exiled family and weird love interests returning. This also feels it feels very strange to watch the courtroom part of it go on and like all of the court drama and the conviction process. Really, all we're trying to get to is punishing Victor, though. The fact mm-hmm. that, that Victor needs to feel guilty about this. Like, he knows the truth and is more conflicted than anyone. Uh, and I, I guess I didn't understand why we needed the fake confession and the, it was, it was all a bit much. Well, I think that it is supposed to exacerbate his guilt. You know, he knows who really killed. Right. And she's going to the gallows. Everybody thinks that she did it. And he says something to the effect of, you know, she became the first, uh, victim of, of my mistake, right? Like she, she is the first victim of the monster that I made. Oops, a daisy. What do you think about all of that, Luke? The the whole f- fake confession and the Justine, the Justine uh, saga. Saga. Uh, it just the way that she ultimately folds is again like within the grand like scale of how Shelley puts the story together. Pretty, pretty pat. Uh, but it's 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 a. Uh, what am I trying to say? Like it's predictable for that character. Uh, she is, uh, a foil. Like, like whenever the monster puts the picture into her, like what the folds of her dress, that's it. I can't remember which edition of that. I read that that's how it played out. It seems pretty easy for him to pull the wool over her eyes. Uh, I think that it seems, it's in line with the other stuff that Shelley was writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a tangent, but it's also I think designed to try and make Victor even more pitiable. Like she wants her audience to feel really bad for him, but really I don't. Do you, do you do you really hate him? Like yeah. I really hate Victor Frankenstein. He's he is the worst. Yeah, he doesn't even have the wherewithal to like kill his monster. Like he probably could have pulled that off. Instead of just abandoning it in his dorm room, seemingly. To well, I don't know about kill your monster you just made, but like put it in a glass tube. Yeah. Like, what kind of mad scientist are you? Speaking of Roger the homunculus, right? Right. Leave that turnip thing hidden somewhere. <laughs> are we missing anything? Any other favorite things that we want to talk about? Well, I, th- I think it's a little on the nose, but the uh, you you mentioned uh, the analogy to Adam and Eve and the monster and his desire for a bride. And that's just another thing that paints Victor in that creator God light, which like I couldn't, I couldn't escape. I couldn't get away from like this, this parallel between I'm your mom and your dad and your God. And you're asking me for things. And I guess I'll grant them you know, if you promise to go away, I'll leave you. Uh, I'll leave you to it. I like that Victor Frankenstein impression you just did. Like, like I'll, I'll do guess. it. Sure. Uh, what do you think about? Is it like an anti Eden that he wants to banish him to? Uh, what about this whole like you got to go to the new world or you got to get away from Europe? Basically, if I'm going to do this, you can't live here. Wants him to. He wants to hide his bastard child, right? Like, yeah. send him. Send him away. Yeah, go somewhere else. Uh, inflict yourself upon a different part of the world. Mm-hmm. Seems very colonial to me. It's kind of <laughs> monster colony. But no, I mean, I, I think the high point of this section to me is anytime Victor and his creation are having an exchange. The The monologue from the creature does get a little cumbersome. Um, and like we've said it, it it is intended to characterize the creature to to give him some humanity maybe there's a little too much uh too too much uh description in there but um i think by and large it shows in the end how tormented the creature is 
and I think the creature is more pitiable than Victor is. Does the the monster win the debate? You think? Tell, uh, set up the debate. Uh, it, I mean, at the end of his story, they they almost go off into this like head to head debate about what should I do, uh, Victor versus Frankenstein's monster. Of you are asking me this, and I hate you. Why would I make another one of you? And then the monster presenting, well, you kind of owe me, bro. Um, and talking yep. about well, just how lonely and pitiable he is. And then also, if you don't give me what I want, I will do nothing but wreck your life for the rest of forever. Uh, I already killed your brother, and that's the opening salvo. So like, think about what's next. Uh, I, it, there's a lot of threatening that goes on, but then it sort of devolves into like, please, man, I'm just... I'm so lonely. Can you just please <laughs> help me out with that? I'm uh, so alone. I'm so alone. And I guess he wins the debate in that it seems like Victor has acquiesced to his demands. But I wondered what you guys thought. Like, was his case the better case? Uh, is is he the victor of this of this exchange of ideas? Absolutely. Right. I think the I think I mean I think the monster is our our Byronic hero. That son of a bitch is gone through the ringer he didn't ask for it he's been created he's just asking very practical accommodations for all of the things that he's been put through and he just says hey creator make good on what you should have done at the outset absolutely i think i think uh i'm 100 behind uh creature versus like victor frankenstein frankenstein's a son of a bitch Team creature. Hashtag team creature. Absolutely. So yep. where do you think this whole Prometheus thing comes in though? Like we've talked about this is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Okay. To, like to me, this is very Greco, I guess. This idea of like you meet your God and you kind of like make your case and say, Hey, uh, I deserve this. Like get, grant me this boon, creator. Grant me this boon, deity. Um it's sort of a weird inversion of that in that he didn't do something heroic to get granted a boon. He did one of the worst things possible and killed a child and now is sort of demanding it. But is that the modern part of the modern Prometheus or where do you think that fits in? Well, let's talk about Prometheus for a minute. Okay. Like what did, what did Prometheus do? Prometheus, he stole us some of that sweet, sweet fire. So is the monster Prometheus or Frankenstein? So Prometheus steals fire from the gods and gives it to humanity. Right. It's the secret of fire. Um, May have also humans. created humanity from clay. Yeah. Um, and the gods guarded that secret jealously. And in um, in response to that, to Prometheus doing that, he is bound upon a mountainside and some vultures eat his liver daily and it keeps growing it keeps growing back yes by an eagle. right yeah zeus's yeah, eagle an eagle okay eagle yeah. yeah um so if you're asking is the creature prometheus the promethean figure or is victor the promethean figure i think victor has stolen the secret of life from the gods but is keeping it to himself like he's that that is that is where his parallel ceases uh, along with the Prometheus myth. He doesn't give the secret of creation to anyone else. He he hoards it for himself, and he abhors himself for even unlocking it. Right. Yeah, he definitely hides his candle under a bush. Yeah, uh, and doesn't so, share it. So I, I think that uh, he's the modern Prometheus, and. Uh, I would have to think that scientists of Mary Shelley's day would have guarded their secrets very similarly, right? Their discoveries, their methods, etc., cetera, um, because they wanted to be the people who discovered the stuff. Um, and I think that to, to be a true Promethean figure, you have to uh, steal something from someone who has it, steal a secret, and, and then you give it to other people who who need it right also about having unintended consequences perhaps of your your good deed or of your, your major decision that you've made and then having to kind of deal with the fallout the monster is sort of 
the unintended consequence in this case uh, that he has to reckon with for the rest of either one of their lives. Mm. What do you think, Luke? What's what's the deal with the Prometheus part of this? So I was just pulling up, uh, flipping through the front end of the the annotated version that I have here, uh, and I'm going to read a short bit. I guess it's not totally short. I'll try to try to do my best to to regurgitate it as as Wolf the editor reports. So. <clears throat> There's a lesser-known aspect of the Prometheus myth, the story of the Prometheus Plasticator, in which Prometheus is seen as the creator of mankind. Christopher Small, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, describes how Prometheus created man in three stages. One, the shaping of man by Prometheus as the sculpture, his endowment with life, by a winged being who applies fires to his body and his animation by Minerva who brings his soul in the form of a butterfly or a bee. That's the first bit. Then Percy Shelley writing to Mary as early as October 25th, 1814 included a quotation from Aeschylus's play Prometheus bound brought uh, Byron later would be influenced by Shelley's translation of Aeschylus and the shaping of his own Prometheus written during the famous 1816 summer when Shelley was writing Frankenstein. So in that Percy Shelley's notes to in a poem entitled Queen Mag Prometheus is by no means a heroic figure. He is blamed for bringing fire to mankind and thereby seducing uh seducing the human race to the foul vice of meat eating in later years after the publication of frankenstein mary shelley would write of prometheus that it was the only imaginary being resembling in any degree prometheus as satan and prometheus is in my judgment a more poetical character than satan because in addition to courage and majesty and firm and patient opposition to an omnipotent force he is susceptible to being described as exempt from the taints of ambition envy revenge and the desire for personal aggrandizement prometheus is as it were the type of the highest perfection of moral and intellectual nature. So all of that is to say Prometheus is, uh, definitely, uh, a creator and we have kind of her, her background outline there. Dig it. Yeah. We, we kind of, uh, touched on, touched on some of it without nailing it down. So we, I like it. That, that puts the, the nail in the, uh, the coffin that puts the uh, the limb on the torso. <laughs> it's also kind of nice <laughs> to involve Percy, yeah, and Byron, Weasel them all, and every one of them, all all of them, all the romantic novelists and poets. So, uh, so John, Josh, where did you guys ultimately get to with the wrap up of like where you were able to read? Uh, in in my copy, I made it to chapter seventeen, uh, the end of chapter seventeen, and the creature has. Um, threatened and begged uh, Victor to make him a uh, companion, to make him a mate, and then they will uh, take off and leave the modern world behind. Yep. What about you, John? Same thing. Uh, Victor is walking home in the dark, uh, this decision weighing upon him heavily, and he gets home and re- realizes he can't enjoy the company that even the creature seeks that uh, he will be denied now because all he'll be consumed with is this task uh, that he doesn't really even want to do. So uh, he is, he's a man damned and he's, he's surrounded by his grieving family at the same time. How about you? Uh, I got maybe just a little bit ahead, uh, but this is a good stopping point. I think we're at the point where, uh, the creature has fully explained his circumstances and says like, Hey, I've got my demands. Let's meet it. So, so I think this is a good sort of wrap up to our discussion. I like it. Uh, a little bit slower than the intro. I think a little, little more, uh, fluff, not really fluff, a little more, uh, setting and, and window dressing. 
and the, and there's character development for the creature, right? That's what right. a lot of the 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 fluffiness is like. Uh, I'm becoming a human. It, it's it's yeah. that it's that. <laughs> Fluff wasn't uh, really the word that I was looking for. That's just kind of what came out. Uh, no, no, it is fluffy because it feels contrived, right? Like it's yeah. it's it's the way that things are playing out. It seems a little bit forced. But I totally get it, though. It it is a bit fluffier. It's a slower go for sure. Yeah, um, extraneous, I guess. Maybe not. Maybe not fluff. I, I don't know. I don't know if either of those words is is exactly what I'm looking for. But um, we have set up the next conflict that we're going to have to see how Victor will resolve. Will he build a monster mate for his lonely monster who has re- only recently learned about uh, a lot about living and a little about love? <laughs> Way down at the Chattahoochee. <laughs> yeah, Luke, pre- if you if you had rolled your eyes any harder, they would have fallen out. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure this is all going to resolve really amicably. Like he's going to do I it. Think so. They're all going to become friends. Uh, I'm yep. pretty sure it's a happy ending. Yeah, That's they they I have expect. a party in part ways. Yep, it's the it's beginning gonna... of Three's Company. I'm almost positive. Like this is the it's prequel not... to that. It's not going to end uh, in the Arctic in some climactic oh, right. final already, conflict. We already kind of know where we're headed. That's right. Yep. Uh, but the the middle portion was a good one, and we enjoyed it. If people want to find us on the internet, Josh, to tell us how they feel about the creamy middle section of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where would they do that? Uh, if you want to, uh, you know twist that Oreo cookie off and get it the, the, the fluffy stuff in the middle, go to the chromecast.blogspot.com. That's where you can find all of our content stemming all the way back into the, the dawn of time. That is the ancient year of 2013. Um, you can email us the at gmail.com or you can call us at eight, five, nine, four, two, nine crom. And we are on the social media platforms at the Chromecast. Get your parents' permission or your God creator's permission. Yeah, talk to your God creator first. And, you know, see if they'll make a mate for you while you're at it. You might as well. You've got their attention. You're lonely. It's a right. You're all, you're all alone out here on this vast ocean that is reality, barren and frozen as it is. You might as well have somebody to share this misery with. As the Blues Brothers say... Uh, there are still some things that make us all the same. <laughs> we all <laughs> yeah. need someone to love. That's right. We'll catch you all a little further on down the Gothic Road.